Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 300. Can you believe it? And I had a conversation with Steve Lindsay. He's a legend in the music industry, producer, composer, arranger, publisher, music supervisor, basically a kingmaker. He's a teacher, uh, just a really fascinating guy. Artists include Bruno Mars, Guster, Elton John, Leonard Cohen, Dr. Dre, Eminem, Keith Urban, Marvin Gaye, Kelly Clarkson, Trisha Yearwood, Aaron Neville, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. He shared a bunch of his childhood stories, what drove him, uh, how he pivoted and pivoted and pivoted to become the incredible success he is today. Uh, We talked about what makes an exceptional songwriter, finding your story, mastering the hustle, his thoughts on fame and the company one keeps, uh, songwriter's job, the importance of lyrics, uh, how he learned to pivot uh, when the phone stopped ringing, what drove him. Uh, It's not just about songwriting, it's really a life lesson about resilience and showing up and working your ass off. I uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, so I'm excited for y'all to hear it. I can't believe it's been 300 episodes. That's still mind boggling to me. And again, I thank you all for listening and for being a part of it. Uh, I wouldn't obviously be here if it weren't for you. And I know that and I appreciate it fully. Thank you so much for keeping this show going and for being a part of it. Uh, Today, in the music industry world, we learned that we lost a beautiful artist, Nightbird. Uh, She passed away from cancer at the young age of 31. Horrible loss. Her song, It's Okay, that she performed on America's Got Talent, I listened to it a few times today. Such a beautiful song and a great example of singing your truth with passion. Everything that she gave to us in the short time that we knew who she was and and what she was about and the beautiful music that she created, uh, that's that's the stuff of immortality. So uh, I was looking at her Instagram today also, and uh, she had posted a poem that I want to read. It's a section from uh, Phase One written by Duraba Ahmed, and it's beautiful. I'm just going to read it really quick. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you for leaving windows open in the rain and soaking library books again for putting forth only revisions of yourself with punctuation worked over instead of the disordered truth. I forgive you for singing mostly when the shower drowns your voice. I forgive you for growing a capacity for love that is great but unmatched only perhaps by your loneliness, for being unable to forgive yourself first so you could then forgive others and at last find a way to become the love that you want in this world. Ugh, so beautiful. It it really, it really spoke to me today and I think it encompasses a lot of just what's going on in our psyches right now and it speaks to Nightbird's song, It's Okay, just all the stuff. I don't know. It speaks to what Steve talked about in this episode about your truth and finding your voice and resilience, compassion, uh, all of that. It's all, it's all there. So thank you for indulging me while I read you that. Okay, the usual stuff. Social media, Hey Human Podcast, can be found on Instagram and Facebook. Susan Ruthism, my personal social media, is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
If you want to check out my music, find Susan Ruth. All I ever wanted was everything. That's the latest record from a few years ago. It's on all the places you get music. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to Hey Human. It totally helps the algorithm and I appreciate it. You can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. You can check out susanruth.com and you will find more about my art and my music and also interviews that happen with me where people interview me. So table turning situation there. Uh, You can definitely check that out. There's also uh, the mailing list you can sign up for on susanruth.com. When you go to heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find a links page. Every episode has links for every guest I have, and I try to put all the information that I can from the episode into that links section so that you don't have to go all over the internet trying to find your information. It's all right there. Easy to deep dive. Definitely check that out. That's it for the businessy stuff. Thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. Be well. Take care of each other. Be kind. And here we go. Steve Lindsay, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. This is your lovely office in Santa Monica, and it's impressive. Is that surreal sometimes? Do you, are, are you so used to it at this point? Or do you ever look around and think, holy shit, look at all this stuff I've done? Uh, no, I personally don't care about this stuff, but... Um, you got to have one room you drag clients into that go that think that. <laughs> <laughs> I get so it. So it was kind of like, you know, I guess the fly trap on some level. So let's talk about where your beginnings were. Um, I was born in New York City. Then somewhere before I remember it, we moved to New Jersey, to Montclair. And I, I, I grew up in a, a show business family, pretty much. I mean, that's what I saw every day. And, and uh, uh, my father was a conductor. And my mother was a singer who was on TV in the early 50s. But <clears throat> she had been working since she was 10 years old and supporting her family the entire time. So by the time she married my father, she, I guess she was you know, calling it quits, or I don't, you know, I don't know what that dynamic was, actually, but... uh, She quit when they got married, you mean? After they had me, and they they both, you know, it was kind of a Brady Bunch thing. My father had three other kids, and my mother had another daughter, so they already had four kids between them, and then I was the first of of their children, and uh, I think that's about when she... She came close to retiring. I, uh, actually, she was working up until the time my father started working for Judy Garland. How did your parents meet? Uh, at, I think on NBC and the you know, backstage. You know, my father was doing. I think he was doing the Jack Parr show or something like that. My mother was on a panel show. This, you know, that that was pretty big in the fifties. Um, and you know, it was like it was like anything. You know, people knowing each other backstage and that kind of thing. So. Yeah. And you're the first of how many of the of their children? Two. Oh, okay. It's two of us and, you know, total of six. When you grow up in a family like that where both parents are incredibly creative, is the urge to, to go opposite 
you know, sort of the Alex P. Keaton situation. <laughs> I'm the I'm the only one who uh, went into show business, but I don't know if that was uh, planned or I, I. You know, kind of growing up there, you just you know you're around us so much, you just think that's what you do when you grow up. Yeah. You know, as you know, I'm sure you know, there's lots of my friends who are lawyers, who father, whose fathers were lawyers and doctors, whose fathers were you know, same, you know, it's like family business. So I was so used to it that um, that it seemed like seemed pretty natural to go there. And your father was, as you said, a conductor, but he's music director for Garland and Merv Griffin and Abe. Right. He was uh, start with, uh, I think, his first big job was with Pat Boone and then uh, then Judy Garland then with Merv Griffin for 30 years and Streisand and much other people so yeah he was always working I think the question with of you know ex- expectations of going into the family business so that's an orchestra orchestra that's a, a person who really knows their music theory and understands music at a really deep deep level mm-hmm. was that an expectation that oh my kids are gonna all have this or not such a big deal no we weren't pushed into it or I kind of grab you know uh, we all played an instrument because my mother thought it was a good uh, discipline and uh, you know and she said like hey you don't have to be a musician but it's always like even if you're a doctor you know if you're at a party you can sit down and play piano it's always good and um, <laughs> get the girls <laughs> yeah so uh but I gravitated towards it pretty early on uh, when uh, my father first gave me my first piano lessons. I could read and write music that evening, so it mm. was. And and then you know I just started falling in love with it probably around ten years old. But I was, you know, studying classical piano with uh, different teachers because that's what you just did. We didn't have like video games or or internet or any cell phones you know you entertained yourself so that was just a part of something you did after school yeah and it was just you know another thing and then but I really loved it and then uh, I think when I was 10 I really wanted to play drums so my dad got me practice pad two sticks of practice pad and a book called stick control and he said, once I had that down, I could get a drum. So <laughs> for my birthday, I got a snare drum. And for Christmas, I got a hi-hat. And then for my next birthday, I got a kick drum. So he solely brought that stuff. And I was driving them crazy. I played the records all day long. And I just loved it. But I continued my piano studies. And I wanted to be in a rock band really bad. And, and But I... But... The keyboard thing was, I think, where I was going to go at after a while. I wasn't going to be a drummer. I didn't think I was going to be good enough. And the Doors had come in, and they had a keyboard player. And you know, before that, everything was guitar players. And I was not a guitar player. So I, um, we went down to Manny's Music Store in New York, and uh, Henry who owned the place. I went to get a far-piece organ. He convinced me to get a Gibson organ because Ray Manzarek had it. I got a Standale amp and and uh, came home with that and then started playing in little bands and stuff. And 
And then we were out in California for a summer. I remember I was like 14. The family, you mean? Yeah. yeah. We came out for early tea. We, we came back and forth between California a lot because my dad did the Judy Garland show for two years out here. And then we went back east again. We lived around the world. So uh, I remember coming out here like 14, maybe 15, yeah, 14 and a half, something like that. When I went to a session with my father and I saw these you know the LA studio musicians came in it was like Mike Melvoin and Howard Roberts and oh I'm not sure who was playing drums probably Shelley Mann maybe not maybe someone else uh, oh John Guerin and uh, Max Bennett you know, the real cool guys and and they were cut they were coming into the session and they all were driving like Porsches and wearing sunglasses and and after the session, I came out with my dad, and I said, hey, I know what I want to do with my life. And he goes, what's that? And I said, I don't want to be in a rock band anymore. I want to be one of those guys. I said, I want to be L.A. studio musician. And I said, that's, that's a lot cooler. I go, those guys are going from session to session in the sunshine with these Porsches and with their names on the parking spaces. I said, that's what I want to do. And my dad looked at me and he said, you know what? You could do that. Because all you gotta do is be the best in the world, and he was really right about that. Um, so, but fortunately, I had a really good father who took me seriously, and he got me the right teachers. I did not go to Berkeley or any of that stuff. He he thought that would be for me a waste of time. Uh, because he knew all the great teachers here in LA, and so I just went to. Uh, you know, I went to all these hand-picked teachers um, that helped me out tremendously. Uh, and at one point he said to me, he goes, oh, I've got a friend, Marty Page, his, uh, who is another great arranger. He said, his son is already doing sessions. But let, me, let me do a backstory on this. Years before, when I was playing classical music, this is in seventh grade, I saw a kid in the hallway at, at, at my school playing a piano. He was like older, he was like a senior. And he was like playing this stuff, he was improvising this stuff. I knew there was no music in front of him. I went home to my father and I said, this guy was just making up this stuff and it sounded so cool. I don't even know what it was. I was like probably 12 or 13. He says, he goes, maybe it was the blues. And so my dad sits down and plays. I go, yeah, that's it, that's it. And he goes, okay. He goes, well, you don't read that. He goes, you know, here's the structure. You got to learn these chords and these scales. So this is my first time really improvising. And so he taught it to me. And then he took me up to his office and he said, look, here's a record. Copy this record. Like you got to listen to it, and then you copy what's on the record by ear. And I said, okay. So the record player and the piano up there, and the, and the album was Oscar Peterson plays the blues. So I was up in that room for about three years learning that record and when we got to LA right after I said I was going to be a studio musician my father said oh listen David Page Marty Page's son is already doing sessions he's like 19 I've set up a meeting with you guys so I went to meet David at CBS and because um, he was doing the Sonny and Cher show at that point and you know, he said, he said, he said, well, play me something. And you know, so I said, sit down and play him. And he goes, well, 
He goes, the first thing you got to stop doing, I said, what's that? He goes, is playing like Oscar Peterson. And I was going like, oh my God, oh no, I've been trying to do this for like four <laughs> years straight. I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he goes, no, that's not going to work here, dude. And uh, I said, well, what should I do? He goes, you got to listen to Leon Russell. And I go, yeah, but that guy doesn't play like Oscar Peterson. He said, trust me, listen to him. So I went, you know, changed my plans and... Then one night I went to go see my favorite artists, Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter at the Santa Monica Civic. And there was an opening band. It was Finnegan Wood, Mike Finnegan playing organ. And I was completely blown away by this guy. Second band, their, their first tour, Little Feet. Oh my I see, God. I see Billy Payne <laughs> playing piano. And I'm going like, oh my God, you know, like, I'm not going to watch this Edgar Winter and Johnny Winter show. I mean, that completely, I was just floored. So, next day, I go down to my little record store. I get their album. I bring it home. And I look at the back to see who's on it. And then I get my dad's union book. And that has the listing of all the musicians in it and their phone numbers. <laughs> Billy Payne is not in there. But Lowell George is. And I call old George in Topanga, and he answers the phone. I go, hey, I'm trying to find Billy Payne. I was wondering if he teaches piano. And he goes, yeah, I think he does. Here, let me give you his number. And then I call him, and he said, yeah, you got to come over and audition. And I went over there and auditioned for Billy, and and he started teaching me for seven bucks an hour. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know... And that was like the beginning of stuff, but it was a longer road to get to the next thing, but with a lot of different variables. Um, you know, there, there was a point in time where I was a real screw-up. Well, pretty much all the time. Like normal teenage screw-up? or Yeah, yeah, but, you know, uh, yeah. Normal. I, I I don't know. By today's standards, maybe it's nothing. But by then, it was like I was definitely the black sheep in the family. I was driving my parents crazy, you know. And uh, how does one be a black sheep in a world of musicians? How are you? I I was taking a lot of LSD. Oh, yeah. That was the start. <laughs> um, smoking pot. Bad boy. Not going to school. Getting chicks. Yeah, getting girls. Well, that's nothing wrong with getting girls, but it was like, but it was more like smoking pot, not going to school, not doing any homework, uh, just playing piano all day. I would imagine it'd be hard for somebody who'd already found who they are to. I don't know if I knew who I was. I knew I liked getting high. That's one thing, and I knew I liked playing music, getting high. Yeah, I mean, like school would probably feel. I did a lot of LSD in high school, and I barely went to classes. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, I, this is not where it is for me. <laughs> so, you know, and probably, you know, I, I guess I dyslexia, ADHD, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, so, I, you know, I was having a tough time, and then... Um, were your parents coming down on you for it, or were they sort of letting you figure it out for yourself? Um... I think, well, combo, combo platter on that one, but um, previous, when we were in New Jersey, my mother 
took me to a place called Serendipities in New York, which was an antique store and a soda fountain. And I fell in love with all this old advertising. And I wanted her to buy me a Coke sign. And it was probably then it was like a hundred bucks, which is like a thousand dollars by our you know, day's prices. And she said, no. And then I thought, well, how am I going to get one of these Coke signs? And I thought, well, how are these guys getting them? So we lived in Montclair, New Jersey. There's a street called Bloomfield Avenue. Went for acres. Just right from Montclair to Patterson everywhere. One long street. And I knew, like, the all the proprietors of the, uh, like, the soda fountain places. So I went in and I said, hey, you got any of this old advertising in your, in your basements? They say, yeah, sure. You want to clean it out? You can have it. And I started... From the time I was 13 to 15, I amassed so much of this stuff for nothing. I got a, I got a Wurlitzer, uh, uh, you know, bubbler uh, uh, jukebox for like 60 bucks. I mean, I had so much stuff, and then I was wheeling and dealing and selling it. And and by the time we got out here, I had a lot of money in the bank. So I think I was like 15 or six, or when I was 16. I was really at odds with my parents and they went out to the movies one day and my sister and brother-in-law were living in Marin County and they had a really cool hippie restaurant called Herb and Joe's and it was all, you know, sort of the Grateful Dead ate and every, it was like my dream and uh, one day they went out to the, they went out to the movies and I don't know how I did it I, I, I know we called a cab I got a cab went to the airport bought a ticket with my bank account in tow in a bag bought a ticket flew up to San Francisco then remembered where they were and got on a bus to Marin it was snowing they didn't even know I was coming and I got to a, a payphone and called them from the payphone while it was snowing they didn't even know like if they didn't answer the phone I don't know what I would have done and I just said, I'm here. And they're, I'm like, what? And then my brother-in-law came to pick me up. And they said, listen, you got to call mom and dad. And, and, I, and, and they said, my father said, look, if you go to school there, you can stay there. And then they put me to work in the Herb and Joe's restaurant, making flipping eggs and shit like that. And I still, I went to school, but I really didn't go to school. I was just hanging out with musicians. And eventually I came back and... Um, and then I moved out by myself, and then I had to get a job. And How old are you at this point? Probably 17 or 18, about 18. So you didn't quite emancipate, but you basically... Oh, they, they were glad to get rid of me. <laughs> and, um, you know, I went to Samo High, and they just got rid of just graduated to get rid of me, too. I mean, it's like early 70s, so I went there with, with you know, when... The guys from Dogtown, the Z Boys, or the, you know Stacy Peralta and all those guys. So that that was a group of guys that were like kind of loners. They were, I was in the bands that would play the parties, and they were like always huddling off by themselves. No girls around, just just you know skateboard guys, and they were cool, and I liked them. We all bought pot together down on Main Street, and um, so that was kind of that and then I you know I had to get a job I was living you know I had X amount of dollars that was being depleted and um, so I looked in the paper one day and there was two jobs that I could get no high school education so one was flipping hamburgers and the other was uh, 
assistant salesperson so at a TV and appliance store. So I went to both interviews and I got both. Well, I thought the flipping hammer ain't gonna do me any good in the long run, but maybe I'll learn something over this sales thing. But that was kind of like not really salesmanship first. It was moving refrigerators around a warehouse for a while. But I think that's my most important job because it gave me a chance to dream doing the manual labor. And then I knew I didn't want to do that again, but I knew I wanted to learn the sales thing. I knew it was really important. I remember seeing this movie called Network and there was a point where, oh, I forgot the actress name, but he's, he's the guy who runs the network and he says, I can sell anything. To, I used to sell, uh, like sewing machines door to door. I can sell anything to anybody. I thought that, you know what? I should probably learn that. And I just got really lucky. I got a guy in there who used to be a Dale Carnegie sales trainer, old timer, that taught me that every day and drilled it into me. And I don't know, by the time it was 1920, I I was running the, I, I was managing the stores. Now I had some money and all of a sudden, you know, I was thinking outside of the box. I was telling the, the people who owned the stores, they had like 19 stores. I said, hey, listen, why don't we make these things look like warehouses instead of these cornball stores and make it look like a discount house? They go, okay, take one store and do it. And it became hugely successful. But I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. So. A friend of mine said, like, hey, I'm going up to University Stereo on Sunset where it's all rock and roll time. And there's a lot of money to be made in selling stereo. So I went with him up there for a while. And Were you we, playing all along? Yeah, I was always playing. Yeah. Always playing. And um, I had a girlfriend and we, I had a baby by the time I was 21. Wow. So now I've got that going on. Did that shift a lot for you, or did you just... Not really. I mean, yeah, it did when she left me with a baby when I was 22, and then I was a single father. But up until that point, uh, uh, you know, I was just, uh, you know, like a 21-year-old guy on Hollywood driving a Mercedes around, doing a bunch of blow, and... Uh, and, you know, I wasn't really marriage material, let's put it to you that way. Um, but, you know, I was 21. Yeah, I don't think anyone's marriage so material at I, that age. So, you know, I, I got through a bunch of stuff like that, and then then I leave there, and then I'm kind of like, I don't go to university, I'm kind of down with it, but then, you know, money runs out again, I gotta figure out something, so. I got another job at this other place called ABC Premiums, which was a warehousey kind of store before Best Buy. This is all before that stuff. And I learned to be a buyer. So I learned the other side of it. And then my really good friend from uh, University Stereo, he's still there. He calls me, he goes, man, he goes, I got these Mexican clients. They've got so much money. They do all these hotel chains. They want to buy like stereos. I'm not. Uh, PA system, like disco system, like how, how can we get involved with this? And and I said, I know how to buy. And uh, long story short, we, we both left our jobs. We got an office on Westwood Boulevard. We called it Ocean Park Wholesale. And uh, we started selling um, 
everything to bear. Like, I went down there, we started with the disco systems before I was done. We were selling the police department their microscopes for fingerprint. I mean, I was, I have been a hustler since I was 13. So I hustled up this stuff pretty well. And at one point, um, you know, I was running into some musicians again, like, you know, like, People were like friends. My were like going like, "Hey, Steve can get us all wholesale stereo stuff." And I had this, these whole things going like I could, I knew how to buy. So when the phone, Sony Walkmans came out, I would call like Sony and go like, "I'll take them all," and then I would tag them. I had like 30 days to pay for them, and then every stereo store like within the surrounding area would be so pissed because it was Christmas time, they had to sell up, so they had to buy them for me. So I'd make a phone call in the morning, just put $10 on each one. I'd make like 2,000 bucks, 3,000 bucks in a day doing just tagging stuff that I knew was gonna go and then resell it. And I had 30 days to pay for it. So I was doing all these scammy hustles and, um, Who's taking care of Bebe during this? I had a, I had a, uh, I had, I hired a woman, you know, like a babysitter lady. Yeah. So we're, we're hustling up all this stuff and, and, you know, Westwood Boulevard was really interesting at that time. There was so many people doing, I mean, Westwood was the hottest place in town. I mean, that was like the nightlife place of all time. I mean, every Friday and Saturday night, that was like, you know, what Abbott Kinney is now, but it was like crazy. So you're on Westwood Boulevard, you're in the heart of the action. So we're like, but, but there were so many guys that were hustling down there too. So one guy came into us at one point, he's, he says like, he goes, look, he goes, I created this thing, this invention. He goes like, you don't have to use your sparklets machine anymore. It's like this water purification system. You put it under your sink and it's got this charcoal thing, blah, blah, blah. So I said, I said, okay, that would be cool for my house. But then I started thinking, hey, we're doing Mexico. And everybody always says, don't drink the water. So I went into this, on Pico, they had a little sign shop. I had a little, little sign made that you put on like the sink, like a little teepee kind of thing. And it said, now you can drink the water in English and in, and in Spanish on the other side. I got that little sign too. Flew down to Mexico and sold water purification to all the hotel chains. And by the time, I don't know, I, you know, Bill and I, we went both out one day, bought BMWs for cash. I, I, I was being clo getting close to being a millionaire by the... Which back then is oh, nutty. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, so I was running into some friends that were doing music. Uh, like, and like people were bringing over people going like, hey, these guys need you all these stereo equipment wholesale, you know, and... And at one point, I forgot how I got, but this guy, Bruce Gary, was a drummer. <laughs> These guys all knew me from ABC Premiums. That's how, because that place was always rocking with the stuff. So I met a lot of rock stars and people in these places. So I started, you know, I never hustled my music thing on anybody. You know, I didn't say anything. I was just going like, yeah, <laughs> they used to call me Stereo Steve. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, Bruce Gary uh, is a drummer in a band. He's they got a record coming out. They're in a band called The Knack, and they have a record coming out called My Sharona. It hadn't come out yet, but it's coming. So he goes like, "Oh, my friend 
burnt a bar. My the guitarist wants to buy a stereo. Can you go over to his house? And he's in the Palisades. He actually. This is like what I don't know. Forty years ago, I moved into that neighborhood. He, he's my friend now. I mean, I've seen, but here's the funny story. So I go over to his place, and he's he's got this. I think he has the first Porta Studio, and I. Rolling drum machine, CR seventy eight, the first of the push button, play a rock beat kind of thing. MIDI is not invented yet, and he's got all this stuff, and I'm going like, wow. He goes, yeah, I can do all my demos and write all my songs from this. Have a little Porter Studio here, and I'm going, that's amazing. So I go to guitar. No, not it was West LA Music back then. I go to West LA Music. I buy it, and then I put it. Now I'm got money. I put a piano in my office. On Westwood Boulevard, I'm going back to doing my music. Three weeks later, I just I said to Bill, I said I'm out of here, man. You can have the company. And uh, and I and I met these other guys that were in, in Venice at the time because I had I got this little place in in Ocean Park, and I started meeting a lot of people that were young and and hustlers like me, um, but they were in real estate. So they were going, and I had some money. They go, like, man, you should come with us, man, and buy up, you know, we're going to buy up Main Street. We're going to buy up all this property. It's the last beach property in, in, in Southern California. It's, you know, it's all, but it's, it was all ghetto back then. I mean, you would not go to Abbott Kitty back then. Forget it. You would be dead. I mean, it was all gang, you know, like, forget that. Main Street was dodgy enough. But these guys, Perloff and Webster and my other friends, they were they were buying up this stuff and they're going like, come in with us. And I was going, yeah, but I want to be a record producer. So I said, like, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give five years. If I'm not a record producer in five years, I'll come with you and do that. Unfortunately, I became a record producer in five years because otherwise I would have owned so much real estate <laughs> in Santa Monica. It would have been ridiculous. But you know, the funny thing about that is I, I still know these guys and they think I have the better life. They have so much more money. And, but, you know, with all this stuff comes issues and problems and, and responsibility because like, you know, as... Okay, COVID comes. Their rents are, you know, people are not renting. They got the cities to deal with and the lawyers and that. I mean, and that's what they're dealing with all day long. Just massive bureaucracy and problems. And that's their day. I'm still that 15-year-old kid, you know, going to the studio and la-di-da-di-da. So I had a goal right around that time when I started. So, well, first of all, here's what happened. I bought that Porta Studio, right? And then I started buying off time at a place called Hit City West, midnight to six in the morning to learn how to be a record. I would just go in there. And then like the engineer said, it was so funny, he goes like, after about a week of it, he said, you know, you might want to bring in a song. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just started meeting people and hustling and trying to I was recording anything you know I was trying to figure it out but then I, I did the math on it and I said I said okay if I'm going to be in here every night for 300 bucks from midnight to 6 in the morning all week long that's a lot of money at the end of the year how much is this shit that they're recording so I went to Coast Recording and I said how much is a tape machine how much is a board how much is all this stuff 
<laughs> and then I had another friend who was a construction guy. He said, because you got a garage, man. He goes, I could build you a room inside of a room in your garage and soundproof it. And then you could put that stuff in there. And that's what I did. And I started the first home studio in Southern California. Nobody had done it. Nobody. And, uh, but I knew the business from my parents too, and I, from my father. And I knew, I know one thing, proximity is power. So, and I, and, and to be in the, the music business, I mean, the power is in the songwriter. That's the most important person. I mean, that's, you know, it all starts with the song. So, God bless you. <laughs> so, what I did was, you know, a lot of things, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I know I got some angels going on in my life because, like, every time I hit bottom, I get back up or whatever, but things present themselves. So, had a girlfriend who had a girlfriend and her boyfriend that she started dating turned out to be this guy named Joel Sill who was running all the music from Paramount and we became friends and I hadn't done any real music but he saw me play piano one night at their house and he says man he goes you're good he goes like what are you, you should be a songwriter and I started my little studio so I made a demo and played it for him and he goes and he said, you know what, I'm going to hook you up with Lance Freed over at uh, Irving Elmo Music. And, uh, and so I went over to meet with Lance to be a demo producer. And, um, and he said, well, I just bought the Memphis Stacks catalog and I'm thinking about hiring someone to do that. I said, okay, okay. So I said, look, meet with me next week. And uh, I went in with my own money picked a couple songs and made de made current demos. That's what he wanted, current demos of old songs, like so he could sell them to Cindy Lauper or something. And I went in, I did the arrangements myself. I don't know how the hell I did it, but I did it. And um, I came in for the next meeting, I played it, and he couldn't believe it. He goes like, okay, you got the job. And for a while, I hadn't built my studio entirely yet, because um, I only had a four track. And so I was still going to hit City West, and I was paying like, he was giving me like 300 bucks a demo, and I was spending $2,000 on the demo, but of my own money. I didn't care. I just wanted to be great. Because I was, you know. And what year is this? Oh, God. 79, Yeah, so that's a lot of money. Yeah. But I had money. And, um, and, uh, so now I'm building my studio up and I'm meeting people over, you know, through through Joel, who's now my best buddy, and uh, through Lance. And, and so uh, I got this opportunity to do, um, write the theme for Dance Fever. And so uh, my friend who was helping me do engineering, he said, like, you should call Allie Willis, you know, who wrote... Uh, you know, September and all that stuff, she would be great for that, you know? And I said, oh, I don't know, because, you know, Lance is a publisher, I get the number, I call her up, and I kind of like, you know, I didn't know her, but I said, like, you know, I got this thing with, you know, the opportunity to do the theme for Dance Fever, and she's going, oh my God, that's so cheesy, of course I'll do it. And so I go over to her place, and then I realize she is another collector like I am, of you know, kitsch and, and old signs and stuff. So we become fast friends because my my house is looking like that because I've never stopped collecting. 
and um, and we wrote the theme. We got the we got that done, and then and, and we got the theme for the show. And uh, now my studio's up and running. And I thought, like, okay, I'm going to do what is called a loss leader, like in. TV and appliances. So if you saw in a newspaper, you know, a Zenith TV for 199 bucks that really was worth 400, you know, they would sell 20 of them or 10 of them to get people in the store. That's called a loss leader. They're going to take a loss on that to get a lot of customers. That's what a loss leader is. So what I did is I offered free recording studio time to all these top songwriters. Not any songwriter, but Grammy-winning songwriters that I love, and I offered them free recording studio time at my studio under one condition, that I produce their demos. Now, not everybody took me up on it, but a few of them did. Allie Willis, Brenda Russell, David Lasley, and I had a whole new set of friends, because my thing was, like, as soon as I started to be in the music business, I had all these other friends from this other business. I said, I'm getting rid of all those friends. I don't want those friends anymore. Now I'm going to have all new friends, and they're going to be the biggest songwriters in the world. These are going to be, my, my, if they're not the biggest, I don't want anybody else. I'm going to just focus on brand new friends. And I've tucked it out there for a long time, but I had one goal which was uh, I wanted eventually to have the three corporations, you know, Sony, Warners, and Universal pay me to be me and leave me the fuck alone. That was my goal. Now, that did not happen immediately. That happened over, I don't know, 20 some odd years. I finally got that happening. But, uh, so I was doing this, I was, you know, hustling these demos, not really making much money, but my demos were getting out there because these writers were getting cuts, and now Russ Titleman's calling me to figure out how I made these demos because I'm also being, I had money to buy the newest gear, the samplers, the drum machines, the first MIDI things, and I was learning all the stuff, and I was dedicated to it 24-7, and I was just thinking outside of the box and making stuff that nobody could make. I mean, I was just like, you know, up all night sampling my own samples and, and then making the demos out of that stuff, and so now Russ is calling me, you know, Seymour Stein is down there, and... Uh, I remember I was doing a record for Seymour Stein and he wanted to come down to the studio finally. And as he came, you know, parked on the hill, I said, all right, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I feel like I'm making these records in a garage. And he looked at me and he goes like, hey, some of my favorite records were made in a garage. I don't care. And that was really, that was really actually eye-opening for me. And uh, so I work with, C is, you know, and now everybody's kind of hustling now. I, and, and it becomes kind of a little mecca of its own and um, one day um, oh, I go in to do uh, you know now I'm doing some keyboard sessions for people too because people are seeing me play and uh, Richard Perry who had been doing the Pointer Sisters and I, I go in to do a, a session for him for Elda Barge and um and 
I don't know, you know, uh, and that was really great. But Brenda Russell gets this song called Dinner with Gershwin for Donna Summer that Richard's going to produce, and she insists that I do the arrangement. So I get called back. But I'm now producing at Warner Brothers for Seymour. And I said, and so I talked to his guy, his handler or manager. And I said, well, I got to co-produce. And he goes, Richard doesn't co-produce. He goes, he wants to hire you as an arranger. And I'm like, well, I don't want to work for that old man. And uh, like, I'm the hot young guy, you know. And uh, so, and Seymour says, calls me, because this is all, you know, he's at Warner's too. And he goes, listen, kid, he goes, you're really talented, but you're pretty difficult. So, uh, and, and Michael Austin says the same thing. They both corner me there and they're gonna like, go do this thing for Richard. You might learn something, kid. And um, charge him what you want, he doesn't care. So, you know, like, I forgot I called Jeff Lorber. I go like, once a rate, he goes like, he goes, you could probably get 10,000 bucks a day or whatever from that guy. So I said, okay, I'm, you know, so I go down there and I'm working all day on this track by myself. He says, how do you work? I said, I work by myself. I'll do the drums, I'll do the bass, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, don't worry, I got it down. And um, so I got all my gear there and I'm doing the stuff and Brenda's there. And and at one point, Richard, um, he, he explains to me what he's looking for in the string part. And it's so eloquent that it was actually inspiring. And it, it inspired me to do something different than I would have done. And then I watched him uh, produce the vocal with Donna. And I didn't know how to do what he was doing. I mean, he was like a great acting coach with a, a great actor. I mean, it was like... And also during the day, he was having Brenda rewrite the second verse. And explain, and I said, like, why? You know, I never even thought of anything like that. I mean, well, who who does that? You know, and uh, and then like that night, I'll never forget it. I driving home from Melrose from Studio Fifty Five was like the worst night of my life because I realized that night I was not a record producer, and I said I got to learn that shit. So I called him the next day. I said, hey, man, I'll call, you know, if you want me to help you with your background, vocal parts, whatever, or he mixes, I'll come in for free. He goes, yeah, sure, come over. So I spent the next week with him, you know, just watching him work. With Perry. Yeah. Yeah. He called me back, like, you know, 10 days later to work with Michael McDonald. And, yeah, I went back there, got the shit kicked out of me again. And then with Elder Barge again, you know, torture zone but you know it's like musical it was music boot camp over there it, and, and the funny thing I, I explained to people you know because I'm pretty much a hard I mean Richard was my mentor I was a, with him a lot of years and I, I truly loved him people hated you know, there was people who just said how can you handle that shit and I'm because I'm learning something and um, and I respected him I don't know, every day was just you know phenomenal there it was for me it was like and, and I wasn't making that much money oh so anyway he calls me one day and he says like look I'm looking for a right-hand man 
my guy is leaving, this guy here, Jim Track, who was his handler guy who booked the sessions. He goes, I'm looking for a writing guy. I was looking at someone who was older than you, but um, my wife says you bring something younger and cooler to the thing, and and uh, why don't we have a meeting? So he comes in, he, and basically is offering me no money. And now I'm making some money. I'm working with everybody. I'm working with the Jacksons. I'm working, I mean, now, like, my thing is moving up. But the deal is I can't work with anybody. No Quincy, no nothing. Just, you're in that camp, that's it. Hmm. Exclusive. And it wasn't that much dough. And I thought, like, well, okay. I, went, I said, let me think about it. And I went home and I thought, like, okay, I'm going to do this for a year. This is going to be my college education. Was that normal that it would be more camp-like? The people were very campy. Yeah. Unless you were just a session guy that went from place to place. But I, would, I didn't want to be a session. I wanted to be the producer. Do you think that's more because every producer, every engineer, they all have their fingerprint, and so people start to recognize a fingerprint and want that specific? Uh, well, I think it's a war out there, and I think people want, don't want what you're doing to be known somewhere else. Got it. So, you know, I'm doing that for years. Years. You're with Perry for years? Years. Mm-hmm. And um, so Michael Jackson then buys the Beatles catalog and <laughs> decides he's going to yeah. make this animation film with all the songs and all big stars doing it and all producers. So Richard gets Luther the Michelle cut with Luther Vandross and he hands it to me. Now I'm now I'm doing a lot of work. I've been there for a long time. I kind of know his thing. But you know, look, Richard's still the greatest. I, his worst record is better than my best. What's so, it like Yoda and Luke? He um, taught me everything. Yeah. But he taught me the greatest lesson during this Luther thing. I'm working on this arrangement. And I do one arrangement and it's okay, but he throws it out. Then he kind of like talks me into this whole other mindset. And then I go like, okay, now I can really go way out on a limb on this sucker. And, um, and it's actually probably the best record I ever did. And I did it on my own basis. I mean, we did it in my, I have, now I moved my studio to the village recording studios and I'm up on the third floor. I built my own room up there with all my synthesizers and my 24 track and my board and everything. And, um, because I was at the point where when I was doing sessions, I would show up and it would just be me and they'd bring in all my gear and set up. And I was going like, well, why don't you just bring me your tape? You know, it's like, why am I moving around all over town? So I just, I took this place up at the village and I, said, and I took a gamble on it. Just bring me your tape, I'll do all, and I, I can stay in one place all day long. So um, anyway, so I'm working up there and uh, the night I cut the thing, I can't get my regular engineer, so they send in a sub, and it's a girl, and a girl named Leanne Unger. At the end of the night, you know, I, and now I'm, I'm, I'm hand playing all this stuff, the whole thing. You know, it's not like, I mean, the drum, I did, did an 808 drum machine, which I programmed, but the rest of the stuff I'm hand playing, the bass, the strings, everything. At the end of the night, she goes, you know, she goes like, you're, you're a really good producer. She goes like, I got a client that's looking for a producer. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. Because now, at this point, I had had, because I was in Richard's world, I had had so many record company presidents bring me, like, Pointer Sister look-alike bands 
for me to produce because they didn't want to pay Richard his fee and they knew I kind of could do it. But I would say no to all that. I wasn't leaving him to do that. So she says, yeah, I got this client. I said, who's, you know, okay, who was that? And she goes, Leonard Cohen. I go, really? And she goes like, yeah, would you like to meet Leonard Cohen? I said, I'd like to meet Leonard Cohen. <laughs> so the next day he comes up to my studio and we start talking. Now here's the great thing about working with Richard. Richard opened my ears and eyes to lyrics over these periods of time. Before when he was having Brando rewrite something, I was going like, who cares about lyrics? I'm into the guitar licks, you know? And, um, but he really, <laughs> he used to have all these girlfriends, these beautiful girls. Like girls that I could never imagine even being with them, these incredible models. And he'd get a new one every three weeks. And I go like, Rich, finally I said like, you got another girlfriend like this? And I go, I go what is it you want out of a woman? And he, he said, give me tits and lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I will never forget that. As long as I live. <laughs> and so, anyway, he really opened my eyes. And so when I talked to, Len uh, to, to Leonard about this, you know, I really knew my lyrics. Thing. I, I could because Leonard had like 50 verses for every song yeah you know most people can't write two good verses he had 50 great verses so I could go through it and be like a nice sounding board and say well you know not that I had really anything to do with it but I could talk to him about it and and because I really study vocal production like in the way Richard did it you know I went in with him one night and he said this is my producer because I could talk to him like about the motivation about the lyric he was saying the post's important lesson from this Luther thing was that now Luther is kind of like giving me shit about my track because it ain't like his normal stuff that Marcus Miller does God bless Marcus Miller because he's a genius and those records are incredible and you know what? I don't think I'm as good as Marcus Miller, but I was doing my own thing and it was pretty good. And nobody could take that away from me because nobody could do I had this thing where I was blending. I figured out how to reharmonize the whole Michelle record to make it not sound like a little German pub song. And then I kind of stole the groove from Juicy Fruit for the drums and then like the bass line from I Was Made to Love Her, and then I did like a Michelle Legrand string arrangement on top. It was like this, this, you know, gumbo of this thing that was, I, I know, I just got lucky. I mean, it was like, I don't even know how I did it, but I did it. And Luther was giving me a little shit about it, and we were kind of like going back and forth about it, you know, because I was still arrogant at that time. You know, so we were at the mix or something over at one of the studios and Richard pulled me aside and he goes like, he goes, he goes, I don't know what's going on with you and Luther, but he goes like, I'm telling Luther I'm standing by your arrangement, but you gotta learn something. And I said, what's that? He goes, if you want the power, you gotta learn how to play the servant. Mm. And that took me a while to grasp the entirety of it. But from that point on, it changed my life. 
because then it became the you know my mantra of serving because look let's go back to where all these people begin I'm not saying all because everybody has a different motivation why they want to be a star okay so here's what I imagine there's a boy or a girl mommy and daddy don't pay attention to them or they got some problems at home or something's going wrong so they get a pretend microphone and they sit in front of that mirror and they they pretend that they're singing out to the world because they want a lot of attention that they're not getting and the ones that really got troubles are going to get motivated really hard to get that attention and the whole thing is about attention on some level and whether it's through acting or something else or you know whatever it is but in music this is a big common denominator that i found it's like you know the ones that are really driven they're the craziest and they, you know to get that kind of to get that discipline and that and to get that kind of attention from the world good and bad Honestly, I mean. yeah, I don't know what the good part is, but um, so if you're the producer and you step into that light of their attention, you're gonna get crushed. So that's why, you know, at one point when I was producing a lot, you know, when I was producing Elton and Aaron Neville and Celine Dion and you know, Willie and Peter Gabriel, you know, Don was, and I were on a playground, and you know, our kids went to the same school. And he said, "Man, you got to get a man. You got to get a publicist. You're quietly producing all the biggest artists in the world." And I said, "Yeah, but I want to continue to do that. I'm not stepping in their light like you're doing." And I love Don, but he's a star. I'm not. He knows how to play that game. I, I don't know. I mean. He's pretty light and lovey, I'm not. You know, so I just, I never wanted to do that. Um, and it's, it served me pretty well, but there was a, you know, there was a time after I'd been selling millions, after I left Rich, it was started with the, started with um, Leonard, Leonard. Alexander O'Neill, Cece Peniston, then David Anderley had a meeting with me over at AM and he thought I'd be good for Aaron Neville. I go, hey, I'll do it. And he goes, like, Whoa, whoa, kid, you know, slow down. You know, like, it was just a thought. And I go, like, Give me a week. Same thing. And I, and I, I, I went around to all the publishers. I told them I had the gig and I said, Give me your best songs. And then I, I, I listened to hundreds of songs, assembled a, a DAT with like seven or eight songs, and I brought it into him the next week. And he said, okay, we'll meet with the manager. Met with the manager, flew me down to meet with Aaron, and I got the job. And then at that point, I beat out a lot of big people to get that job. And then it was Aaron's first platinum album, and I was doing really good till about 93. And then uh, Grunge came in, 
and the kind of producer I was was not wanted anymore. And it's pretty scary because, you know, I was driving around my fancy car, living in Mandeville Canyon with a swimming pool and a tennis court, and, and uh, you know, the phone stopped ringing. So uh, I had a manager at the time, um, Ben Kaufman and Steve Moyer, and, and they're going like, well, you know, like, uh, you gotta, you know, go develop a band. And I'm going like, what? And I'm going, go to uh, Seattle. <laughs> I'm, yeah, exactly. I, you know, it's 93. And they go like, you know, I said, I'm, develop a band. I said, like, I'm used to making $100,000 on a weekend. And they go, that's not happening anymore. And I'm freaking out a little bit. But they get me this opportunity with a band that wasn't signed named Guster. And, Love Guster. And I did their Goldfly record. And... Uh, went to Boston and went up to their attic and edited their songs and and then um, Adam Cohen, Leonard's son, wanted to record and you know and I got and I not only did I put that thing together but I learned how to really negotiate between two record companies to get a lot of money and um, basically my skills from selling appliances and um, and then I was back in play again all of a sudden you know Madonna's my friend and and you know like I'm back at it you know I went from like you know a guy who you know was like a slick pop producer to like you know on the edge of shit when you're dealing with a band that is creating their own work versus seeking out outside songs, is it? Do you go in with the same mentality of trying to to I'm help them call what is the greatest thing that they could do? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I'm kind of you know, I'm all about the songs, so it's you know. I don't know. I've learned. I'm still learning, but it's. But it's got to be trickier with the egos of the band to oh say your your songs are not maybe good enough, or you need to change this or do this. Whereas a professional songwriter, that that's all they're doing all day long. You know, sometimes two writers will bring you a song, even if they're pros, and, and they're like, "And this is the this is the problem from my side of the thing." It's like they'll bring me a song, and they'll go like. Check out this song. We just wrote it. Blah, blah, blah. We just, you know, it's like they just gave birth. That song didn't exist until they wrote it. So they just gave birth to this thing. And and you go, yeah, that's a that's a beautiful baby, but it needs a nose job. And then, how can you say our baby needs a nose job? It's perfect. Now people actually will, I think, listen. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not right. I mean, it's like it's all subjective. I can be as wrong as I'm right. But, you know. I think I have a good sense about what it takes to have a song that will endure and, and be, a, you know. Regardless of genre? Yeah. That's an interesting pivot because I think for a lot of producers and musicians, not necessarily one trick, maybe two trick ponies, but to be able to pivot around so many genres like you have is a feat. Well, you know, that was the other thing my father said to me when I wanted to do this. And he says, you better be able to do it all. So, yeah, I'm kind of like, I've dedicated my life to learning everything about 
every style and you know I'm a pretty good forger when I have to be for TV and film stuff and um, and then I also you know I'm around the best musicians on the planet I mean it's like some of these guys Jim Cox Dean Parks George Jeering Dan Higgins Charlie Bishop I mean these guys are proof that aliens exist I mean these guys can like Jim Cox is the reason why I am not, you know, a session piano player anymore, or even like I shouldn't even call myself that compared to that guy. I mean, it's like, you know, I remember seeing him actually sit down the first time sit down and play. I said, I better take this record production thing a lot more seriously, you know, because if this guy exists, I, I can practice 500 years, I'll never be that good. Yeah, I know a lot. That's just talking about the style thing yeah but I you know I love everything so it's like you know I'm passionate about everything you know I'm a record collector I talk you know we talk all all the guys we talk about all these records and little you know it's like you know, I'm, I'm nuts about it I mean it's, yeah it's like it's my hobby too so it's mm-hmm. um, and I and I like figuring out how people made those records but you know at the end of the day you know the songwriter's job is to make people feel like they're not alone. And I've worked with some really, you know, I'm always learning. I've worked with some extraordinary people. I mean, Jeff Barry probably is the best songwriter and the best teacher I've ever worked with in my life. Um, you know, his thing is like, you, in the first line, you've got to answer the question, you know, who are you singing to, where, when, and why? And that's a hard thing to do. And uh, watching that guy work was just, you know, that was the master class. You know, I, I've never met a songwriter like that. And I've worked with some great, 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 great songwriters. But that guy, he's on another planet. Um, you know, I mean, he, his list of songs from Be My Baby to, you know, I honestly love you and all these other things. I mean, just, you know, just incredible amount of it. And the, his economy of, of what mm-hmm. he's doing, it's just like, I mean, I'm still, you know, like that's, that's the best guy I've ever worked with for me. Yeah. You know, he was so funny. I mean, all these guys are so, all these Brooklyn guys, because I, you know, I, I'm Burt Backrack fanatic. And when I was talking about Bert, he was like, ah, that guy is kind of a hack, and, you know, it's like, and he goes, ah, and I said, well, you know, and he knew I worked with Leonard Cohen, he goes, yeah, whatever, Leonard Cohen, I don't know, what is, you know, you understand any of that stuff, really? And it's like, <laughs> like, who cares? It's like, how many, how many hits does he have? <laughs> you know, it's like that kind of thing. You know, it's a, there's a competition between all these guys, it's pretty funny, so. When you meet, because I would say you would be the personification of a kingmaker. So when you meet artists who don't even really know who they are yet, do you know right away? Or is it something that you say, okay, now you've got to jump through a lot of fire that I'm going to... Well, okay, and don't mean to interrupt you, but the secret of that, and this is where you're going, but I can, I'm going to condense it down to... So, and it took me a long time to figure this out, but... Great artists have great creative purposes. 
So if we look at, you know, and I think we discussed this before, but for yeah. sake of... <laughs> we discussed it, but for sake of them. <laughs> the Stones, the longest running band in the history of, of rock and roll. They got the great sexy singer with a unique voice. They got the cool guitar player. They got the other guys in the band that are cool too. But, you know, you gotta have the guitar player and you gotta have the lead singer. And of course, those two guys, amazing songwriters. You know, without the songs, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. But they got the great songwriters, the great front man, the great cool guitar player. But beyond that, they have something even more important and that's their creative purpose, which is they represent sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If sex, drugs, and rock and roll is your thing, The Stones is your band. Okay? So, that's the title of their book. Every song is a chapter in that book, and they don't deviate from the message. That's why they're the biggest band of all time. Uh, you know, if you think about the Beatles, okay, what's their creative purpose? Okay, maybe they don't have one. But the importance of them is that they brought songwriting to rock and roll. And two of the greatest songwriters, and, you know, George too, but really, Paul and John, amazing. You know, they clicked right at the right time, right place. You know, if you read, uh, you know, Outliers, it's, you know, it's pretty evident. They just, the 10,000 hours in Germany, and they're coming back, they were writing, and, the, you know, the timing was perfect. I don't think we're going to ever see a band like that again. I don't think it's possible. But maybe. So if you cut to today, the biggest artist in the world is pretty much Taylor Swift. She has the massive creative purpose, which is and that she is the best friend of every girl who's going to be alone on Valentine's Day. So she has the two messages. The gathering message where she is sitting alone in her room, you know, writing in her diary, no guy's going to love me, I feel alone, you know, I, I, you know, I feel ugly, you know, the whole thing. Every 13-year-old girl feeling that way, they're coming in in droves <laughs> to be Taylor's best friend. And then, because that message is too depressing, she has to flip it and she then takes all those girls and empowers them to, you know, put you on their blank page and shake it off and they're going to rule the world. And that's why she's the biggest artist in the world. She has this massive creative purpose. So when I look at artists, you know, coming in, this is why I don't sign that many people. If they don't have that, maybe they can build it but it's gotta be honest too. So if they're kind of like finagling it or like, I'm gonna do, you know, I'm gonna be like this now or that now, or for me, it's not, it's kind of a waste of time. So, and I'm not 20 anymore, so I gotta like really, you know, pick and choose what I'm gonna do. That's really the, that's what I look at. Um, do they have a message? And is that message important? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, and you teach them from the get-go. They they have to go in guns a-blazing. I mean, you said they have to learn the Beatles songs. They have to learn the Well, that's in, in my company. So, like, when you come to my company, it is... 
I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm unreasonable. I don't know. You know, maybe I should treat people a little bit easier. I don't know. But I, I believe that, you know, if you're coming in and you're... Uh, okay. The difference in where I, you know, my generation... I don't like to be the old guy in the room either. <laughs> but my generation and the current generation is different because like my generation we had, we had to write a song we had to make a demo we had to go around shopping that demo to some there were filters all along the way to get a hit record so an A&R guy had to like it then he had to give it to an artist maybe they don't like it that song doesn't go then you do a bunch more songs and then an A&R guy likes your song and gives an artist that likes your song and then they're Say, we're going to put it on hold. We're going to cut it with the other 40 songs they're going to cut. And then it's got to boil down to the 10 that get to go on the album. And that's a big hurdle. And then if you get picked as a single, well, that's an incredible thing. But that doesn't mean it's going to be a hit. That just means that it may go out there and they might spend some money on it and, you know, promote it to some P3 stations. If they don't get the phoners, that's the end of that. So it's like the hurdles to get heard back in my time, you really had to be good. Now, anybody with a laptop and really doesn't know that much about music and can just buy some loops and shit like that and then sing Top Liner over it and make that record this afternoon, could put it up on Spotify and they're, they're there. So it's like, we went through, through from all these hurdles to get heard to like 100,000 songs a day going up on Spotify. What's worse? Right. I mean, I think we had it better. Yeah. Well, it certainly it, made the content better. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like 100,000 songs a day. Yeah. That's a lot How to get How do you over. not drown? You just drown out everything. It's all gray dots. And so, um, how do you get heard? How, you know, playlisting, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like payola again. So, when you come into my company, I, I make... I make sure people understand if they're young writers, yeah, they got to learn two Beatles songs a day. They got to learn their background song. They got to learn how to play. And I'm not talking about listening to the songs and going like, yeah, I've checked that out. I'm talking about learning those melodies exactly in the, in the lyrics. And we talk about that stuff. It's, you know, hmm. it's kind of a school. And then we, you know, a lot of people don't know these songs or they don't know Steely Dan or, or Neil Young or... Well, they're not going to know Neil that much anymore. I would get that with some of the young writers that would come in or young artists that I got paired with, and they had never heard of anyone. And so I would give them stacks of CDs and say, go listen, figure out who you are and and what you like and your grandparents, great-grandparents of song Mm -hmm. and go all the way back as far as you can. Yeah, or there isn't a lot of lineage. It feels like these no, days, and, and they don't want to learn it either. It's uh, for a lot. I'm not saying everybody. I there's some artists that come in or people I work with. They you know their parents were loved music and yeah. played music all the time, so they grew up listening to like Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and all sorts of stuff. And then that's a part of like what they grew up with, so it, it seeps in. That's a good thing. But I got people that coming in like, you know, the only people they know is Justin Bieber. And I'm not saying Justin Bieber is bad, but I'm just saying, but that's their whole reference to their musicality. There's another thing I do, which is I don't, or we don't do track top liner. 
in my company. Explain what that is for people. Okay, so in the 80s, when the pretty much the Akai MPC-60 came in, that which was a drum machine and a MIDI workstation, that allowed a lot of people in the game that shouldn't have been in here. So you could do a drum beat, you do like four chords and loop it, and now you got a thing that sounded like a record in minutes. Um, and then the process would be like, okay, we had this like track with four chords and that's all it's in. Now we're gonna stick a singer and sing on top of it and write a song, okay? That was the beginning of this stuff. Now it's the technology is so insane that anybody can sound amazing in five seconds. So they make these loops, like three chord songs, and then people sing on top of it and make these lyrics and melodies, and, and then that becomes the record. So here's my analogy. A great record is like a great movie. And what is a great movie com you know, comprised of? Um, a great script, great cast, actor, actress, and a great director. You get those three things right, you got a shot. So, in you know, in comparison, the in our business, the script is the song, and the star of the movie is the singing star, and then the director is the producer. Okay, and you need those three elements. So, if you look at the I mean, if you were, I work a lot in films, so if you see a shooting script, it's like, mm -hmm. the script is like a million different colors. Every mm -hmm. one of those colors is a rewrite. Mm -hmm. So if you're not rewriting your song a million different times, you have no shot. I mean, if you're just like, hey, I wrote a great song today. When guys say that to me, I say, please don't play me that. That's impossible. Here's the comparison about the track top liner thing in music. So it's, it would be this. You take a cinema photographer, the greatest cinema photographer of all time, and have him go out and shoot a bunch of blank scenery. No people in it, no storyline. And then have him edit it down to an hour and 45 minutes of the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen. And then go have him go over to uh, Martin Scorsese's house and go, hey, pardon I got an hour and 45 minutes of the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen. Can you get someone to write a script to it? And then can you green screen in a bunch of actors? He tell you to go fuck yourself because you're starting with, now he's boxed into the scenery with no place to go. It's like, that's the scenery. So. But so much of pop is that. Yeah, but how long? Okay. But they're all, they're uh, all very throwaway songs. It's all throwaway. Yeah, for sure. Okay, you, you know, can you One remember night. the last Halsey record? No. I can't. I, I do have I, trouble remembering songs. Yeah, because the they're, they're, not, they're not constructed in a way for you to remember. They're, they're, there are these, uh, you know, events. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that people are making bad records. But the songwriting is kind of like, and, and oh my God, you know, they have this, someone said to me, a, a major writer came in the other day, like very successful. And he was going like, he said to me, you know, cause there's this algorithm thing over at Spotify. Yeah. He goes like, like what algorithms are you following? And I said, well, 
I said, I only have one algorithm. He goes, what's that? I said, everybody goes right, I go left. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. I don't follow algorithm. Was there an algorithm for Billie Eilish or for Olivia Rodrigo? No, there wasn't. Now, I'm not saying Billie Eilish is the greatest songwriter of all time, because I don't think she is. I think she's cool. But I think that Olivia Rodrigo record is pretty damn good. Those are some good songs on that. And they did that on their own. And the, I think I think it's so funny because now people are saying to me, like, you know, like, we want to do that Olivia Rodrigo thing, like, have real songs. She's like a modern tailor to me. She's, yeah. she's a Taylor 3.0 or whatever. Yeah. But, but you know, people are going, like, yeah, we want to do that song thing. I'm going, okay. <laughs> we want songs to mean <laughs> something. Yeah, or they, you know, Back they want the songs. Story. You know, it's like, how do we do songs? And I go, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's not the way you've been doing them. It's the difference between Soylent Green and a eight-course meal, really. I mean, you know, the... Yeah. the, the Soylent Green, that's interesting. <laughs> I used to love that movie. <laughs> yeah. That was my stoner movie when I was, like, a teenager. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> when somebody comes to you... This is something we talked about the other day, and I thought, oh, that's such, it's important what do you talk to people about fame or do you even cross that bridge when people come to you and yeah it's not even about the music per se it's i want to be rich and famous and the biggest star in the world well the problem with fame is that once someone becomes famous okay well here's the thing let's go back to just being human we all want to be loved, right? We And, you know, that's the pursuit, really. I mean, that's what everybody's trying to find, that perfect person, that perfect marriage, that perfect girlfriend, the perfect boyfriend, whatever. You know, that's basically what we're doing, right? I mean, on some level. So everybody wants to be loved, I think, unless they're completely psychotic and sociopathic you know but for for most of us that's what that's what life's about so when you get famous and then you meet someone you will never know if they love you for who you are or would they be with you if you weren't famous because you won't know that that's impossible to know but the chances are you won't believe that they're with you because who you are and that will eat at you and that will make you depressed and that will make you turn to drugs and alcohol and get lonelier and lonelier and then that thing will fall apart and you know that's why you know a lot of people go through three four or five marriages in this stuff mm-hmm. or they marry other people as famous or almost as famous yeah but- maybe that's even better mm-hmm. i mean maybe there's something in common there I don't know, because the things that would drive a person to that, um, there's a an emptiness maybe or a hole that can't be filled. And so if you have two people like that, that might oh, be tricky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. And those, those things rarely work. Um, but sometimes they do. I think they probably work better than the other way around. But that's why, you know, I, I tell, you know, younger, you know, the guys, because I'm a guy, and I'd say, like, look, if this happens and you're single, stay out of those clubs, you know. I always say, go find a girl that's working with, uh, you know, um, 
kids that have, you know... Developmentally disabled yeah, like, or something. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, and then find that girl and then beg her to be your girlfriend because she's already a good person, mm. you know? Um, find people that are good people, you know, or you know, if you're religious, go to your church or whatever, you know, but stay out of these clubs because it's only going to lead to disaster later. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, let's look at our biggest stars. What happened to Michael Jackson? What happened to Prince? What happened to Marilyn Monroe? What happened to Elvis? I mean, you're talking about the biggest icons all ended up the same way. So there is a price to it that, you know, I wouldn't wish on my children. Yeah. You know, and um, you just got to be careful about it, too. And it's, I always tell people, look, I'm a Sherpa. I can get you up that mountain. I've already been up the mountain a bunch of times. I know the pitfalls. I know where, you know, I know where the infidels are hiding. I know, (laughs) you know. I know the easier route up, and but it's never easy. But I know, like I can save you some time on the way up, and and uh, but the air is thin up there, mm-hmm. and uh, you got to be prepared for it. And it's the other thing that's funny about it. You know, you, like you can help people as much as I as I do, and it's like it is the most thankless job. Um, Leonard's my favorite quote with Le- that Leonard said was, and it was it, it's perfect. It's kind of a, a, a variation on no good deed goes unpunished, <laughs> but it's why do you hate me? I never tried to help you. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, and that's you know it's like you start helping people out and, do, and they resent it for some reason. Hmm. Are your kids, any of them, following in your footsteps? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I figured that's what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to. I don't, I don't wish that on anybody. Yeah. You know, it's, been, it's been really tough. I mean, it's like, this has not been an easy life. It's been a very tough life. Um, but you would do it again. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I would do that real estate thing. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I probably would do things different because I think I see the importance now in being a better person as I got older. Mm-hmm. For his part, I was, you know, you know, a selfish guy. And and then, you know, you got to figure out what motivated what, what, what motivated me to do all this shit. You know, as I look at all these plaques and shit like that. You know, I was driven too. Yeah, clearly. You know, it's like, but I, you know, and, and, and I went to therapy when I was in my late 20s. That would really help me out because I was really crashing and burning at that point. And there was like a, there was a period, like when I was in school and like, this local Brookside school, like you know, third grade, fourth grade, fifth, somewhere in there. That principal did not like me for some reason. And, and that's also because I think you know, my father was on TV every day. No other, I wasn't in a show. I was in, you know, Montclair, New Jersey. The other famous guy was, you know, uh, Dale Barrow. His father was Yogi Barrow. But that was a baseball player. That was cool. You know, that's more like sports. You know, my dad was on TV every night. My brother-in-law was Robin on Batman. There was, you know, there was some jealousy, I think, going on somewhere along the line. 
there was this thing where you could, you know, like during your lunch period or something like that, you could help out other kids in the school, like the younger kids. Mm -hmm. And I did it every day, but two other kids. And I was like really helpful. And I was, you know, working really hard to be a good little guy and working really hard at that shit. And then at the end of the year, they had this auditorium thing and they gave out these special, these little pens with a little, you know, you know, silver pen or something to all the kids that really helped out. And I was the only one who didn't get one. And I am going to tell you that was the thing that drove me to be like, motherfucker. <laughs> like, I'll show you. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was my driving force, I think, in my life. Interesting. You know, it's like, my wife will say to me sometimes about our kids, like, you know, you know, my son Fox, he's not being treated right with the, you know, or something's happening in school. And it's going like, good. <laughs> It'll drive him to, you know, to be successful or what, you know, or motivate him to do so, you know. Yeah. Everybody now it has got to be so, like, cozy, you know. I mean, that's what I find with parents and kids now it's like oh, it's I agree a, with you it's got to be oh, oh you know because oh, the world don't. is not okay it's yeah. not an okay place it's a disaster at best and yeah. if you don't if you don't get those skills from the get-go yeah. you just won't be prepared no way if you're all you know cuddly and just like you know everything's going to be just so politically correct and god help those kids to get out in the world it's going to be a scary place yeah for sure what's your go-to music when you relax what do you like to listen to and it doesn't have to be one of yours <laughs> one well, of your artists, but it might be well no it's a, i listen all day long to stuff mm -hmm. because i'm working on it so a lot of the times i don't listen to music mm -hmm. when i when i take a break or if i do you know, I like, I like Glenn Gould, um, you know, his, his Bach, you know, recordings. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and I go through different periods. Sometimes I'll go back and listen to all the Steely Dan records again and... You know, I'll just go through different or sometimes I'll just start listening to Merle Haggard for like a week and it, it all depends. You know, I like Willie's Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. and, you know, like, I mean, those are the stations I have, like Willie's Roadhouse. And then, uh, uh, you know, I have the 50s and 60s and I like the 40s. I love the 40s big band stuff. I love big band. You know, I just love it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I grew up that way. My, my dad was really great with that stuff. And um, that's all sorts of stuff. I mean, I it's various. Or, I mean, I'll just be listening to Julie London for a week. I don't know. It's, but... I don't listen to a lot of current music yeah. because I just find it all sounding the same and boring. If I if there's current stuff that's really cool, mm -hmm. that's fine. Like I, I love this band out of England called uh, Young Gun Silver Fox, and I listen to them all the time. I'm amazed by how good they are, and their music's really good, and the songwriting's great, and it's you know. Is that the video you showed me? Oh, I made a video for them. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. And I've never done that. You know, we we generally don't. We just do it for our own stuff. But I did that for them because yeah. I just love. It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. So both the songs he played me were great. Yeah. I mean, I love those guys, and that's new. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we're working on so much stuff that my my brain is, you know, just 
Uh, the sound of silence. Yeah, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I listen to talk radio sometimes. Sure. It was more fun when Trump was president because it was always a disaster every day. You go, ah, that guy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, you know, I mean, I, uh, it's just terrible four years to have that guy in there. But it was, as far as... Uh, you know, never a dull moment. Oh no, it was great. It never. was great for those guys. And you know, it's so funny. They're still trying to like, you know, stir the pot. Breaking news! Yeah. Breaking news! Breaking news! And it's like, you know, nothing compared yeah. to you know <laughs> the calamity that that guy created. Yeah, Steve, this has been. Is this good enough? Awesome! No, I've really enjoyed it. The really? stories are great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You got any other questions? No, I mean, I've taken so much of your time and this has been really wonderful. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.